Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Law School Lounge podcast. This is a Carolina Academic Press production where we discuss everything law school. The Law School Lounge is a place for students and faculty alike to discuss law school and the law. We hope you'll hang out with us for a while. Hello, listeners, and thank you so much for being here with me today, your host, Crystal Norton at the Law School Lounge. My special guest this week is Professor Renetta Lawson-Mack, and she is now an Emerita Professor of Creighton University School of Law, and she is the author of Unpacking Race in the American Jury System, a case book with Carolina Academic Press that goes deeply into the history and the current aspects of racism within the jury system, particularly when it comes to the ability of Black Americans to participate with within the jury system in the criminal context. Now, this episode covers a lot of ground. We had a really long discussion where I was very flattered that Professor Mack humored me by letting me ask her questions. And I have to say that, of course, as you would imagine, the topics and the issues we discuss in this episode were very difficult and can be very difficult to discuss whenever you're talking about the mistreatment or discrimination of another. You are talking about something that's inherently malicious. And so a lot of the things we talk about, including quotations and language from case opinions or things that might arise in the context of jury participation, we are talking about difficult topics that some listeners may not be comfortable listening to. And so listener discretion is advised. But more than that, I just really hope that everyone who listens to this episode walks away critically thinking about their own perspectives, including their own implicit biases. There is not a person in this world who doesn't have implicit biases. Everyone has bias, including judges, juries, and any person in the world, because everyone has their own lived experience and everyone gathers information and makes their own perceptions based on those experiences. At length, Professor Mack and I discuss how implicit bias or how explicit bias and discrimination or racism comes into play in the jury system. But we also pause throughout and touch upon moments to reflect or consider the perspectives and points of view of others, particularly Black people who may find themselves interfacing with the jury system and That arises because within her book, Professor Mack takes out these breaks and poses these POV questions. And I really wanted to make sure before I had this sit down talk with her that I had worked through some of those myself. And as a white woman, I obviously do not have a black person's perspective or a person of color's perspective. And I felt that it was important for me to work through those POV exercises, both personally, but also on this episode for other people to hear 
how that might go or what that might look like. And of course, I was fortunate enough to have Professor Mack there with me to talk about them and to talk about the cases. But I hope that my experience and of course, Professor Mack's extensive knowledge and sharing of information and expertise on the jury system, and particularly when it comes to racism within that system, will help you do the same. And if you are a law student or a legal professional or a law professor, I especially invite you to work through and read the materials in Professor Mack's casebook. The reason that I want to emphasize this, even though it's important for all people to be aware of these concepts and racism within the system, I emphasize it for you in particular because the lens through which Professor Mack presents this problem of racism is through case law, through statutes, through a language that is very readable to anyone working in a legal system. And when you put that lens on it and you see language of a Supreme Court case that says things so inherently racist and what that actually means in the practice of law, it really makes you think about things in a different perspective. It makes you understand these systems and the racism within them on a very different level. So I invite all of you to engage with these materials in unpacking race in the American jury system. And in my opinion, it will only make you a more competent, better legal professional. Now, with all of that in mind, it is time to dive into these topics. I hope that you find this discussion informative. And thank you so much for listening and being here with us. Well, hello, and thank you so much for being here with us today. This is your host, Crystal Norton, and I am joined today by Professor Renetta Mack. She is now Emerita and living in another state, but she was teaching this course at Creighton University, and she is the author of Unpacking Race in the U.S. Jury System, a case book here at Carolina Academic Press, and I am so honored to have her here to talk with me about the topics and issues covered throughout her book and within this context. And so welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Crystal. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to come on and talk about some of these issues that I spent a couple of years working on and issues that are near and dear to my heart. So thank you for inviting me. Of course. No, it's it's my honor. And I know that these topics are obviously difficult to discuss in a lot of respects. And so I have to say, reading through your book, I just appreciated the candor, the honesty, the reflective components of your book that were included throughout, because I think that they do the material justice in a lot of ways. Well, thank you. That That's one of the things that I, I thought when, when I was writing the case book, of course, in a case book, you include cases. But I thought, if we're unpacking something, 
then it's probably good for students to not just look at the cases, but to reflect on broader societal issues that are raised by the cases, even the societal issues that persist even today. So the, the point of view reflections that I included, uh, as well as the uh, at the end, an appendix that uh, has students actually choosing jurors, uh, I thought that those would be good for students to sort of get a practical experience, but also a reflective experience. No, they're incredible tools. And I, you know, that leads me nicely, actually, into my very first question for you, which is, why did you decide to write this book? One of the things that I that I thought about as I was thinking about the criminal justice system, and that, that was, that's been my career for, for 32 years, teaching criminal law and criminal procedure, as I thought about the criminal justice system, I, I thought we have a, a, a tremendous amount of material on over-policing in minority communities. We have a tremendous amount of material, wonderful material on mass incarceration, but those are sort of opposite ends of the spectrum. We have the over-policing, then we have the mass incarceration. And so I thought about, well, what's happening in the middle? What's happening in the middle that moves people from the over-policing to the mass incarceration? And, and there are lots of things happening. There are, there are There's some work that's being done on prosecutorial discretion. But one of the things that I thought about is, what about the jury system? What role has that played in mass incarceration? And, and people might say, well, most, most criminal trials don't go to a jury, so it can't have played a large role. And that's true. That's true. Over 90% of cases are plea bargained. But it, it, it's not accurate, at least in my opinion, to think about what has the jury system done. But we also have to add to that, what about avoidance of the jury process? What about people who are avoiding it because of what they've heard about it? They've heard that it's not fair. They've heard that they won't get a jury of their peers. Um, and so they avoid it and they, and they go for the plea bargain. Now, there are other factors that lead people to plea bargain as well. But Avoiding the jury system could be one of those problems. So it's not, as we unpack this jury process, it's not so much about, in, in terms of trying to reform it, uh, if we're looking at trying to reform it, that is, it's not about just the jury system process itself, but getting people to understand what this process is doing and then reforming it from that basis. So, so, so I started looking at the jury system and unpacking this uh, as part of the criminal justice system and looking at the history through the cases because there's lots of, there's case law in the cases, but there's also lots and lots of history. Uh, and that's uh, how I came up with the idea. Well, I have to say that, you know, the idea of having a place to start is, I think, really meaningful. And I mean that because right now, especially, it's a very big topic about criminal, the criminal legal system or the criminal justice system being reformed. But when you hear that and you start to kind of dive into it, obviously, like you said, you have mass incarceration, you have the over-reliance on plea bargaining. There are so many moving parts within that system that it can feel really overwhelming for someone who either wants to learn more about it, who wants to be an advocate maybe. And so I appreciate that the perspective and context and all of the 
tools that you have in this book are aiming at actually having an impact directly into the system. And I know we're going to talk about that a little bit more later, but I just wanted to say that I really appreciate that because, you know, I, I've taught criminal justice students in different capacities. And that's something that I kind of always get asked, you know, you've given us all this information, how do we do anything? And I felt that your book allowed people to feel that they had a way to interact with the system meaningfully. But you know, as far as this being in law school, how do you see this book kind of fitting within a greater law school curriculum? So I, I envisioned it as, as a tool that can, can be an add-on to a criminal procedure class. I tried to make, not, not to make the book too long uh, so that it can be assigned or portions of it can be assigned as an add-on for, for a criminal procedure class if there are discussions of the jury system. It can also be a separate breakout seminar. I think it would be excellent as a tool, as a resource for a seminar on the jury system, looking at the jury system as a whole, and then having this as a tool to focus on unpacking those issues of race. Because of course, in my opinion, you can't talk about the jury system without talking about the, the racism, the systemic racism that underlies that system. So I think it would be an excellent resource for a seminar. I also, as I was writing the, the case book, and I, and I know that there are cases in here which tends to suggest that it is for a law school audience, but I tried to make it a little bit readable for an undergraduate course. So there are undergraduate criminal justice courses, and if people want to incorporate, again, some of the issues related to systemic racism, then I tried to make this book accessible for that audience as well. The, some of the reflection questions, uh, some of the questions that follow the cases, try to break down the issues in the cases so that even people who are not necessarily in law school can get a sense from the questions that follow the cases, get a sense of what the case is saying, even if they find that the case might be a little bit overly complicated for them. No, and thank you for pointing that out because I did think a couple of times while I was reading it that my paralegal students would find this really interesting. This could be a really impactful, meaningful way for them to navigate some of the issues of being a legal professional in a paralegal course setting, you know, so an undergraduate setting. So sure. I appreciate you bringing that up. I, I think that's a great point. Sure. Now, okay, let's kind of maybe move away from these points and head into the substance of unpacking race in the jury system. Okay. So if you wouldn't mind, and obviously this is a really big question and I understand that, sure. but how did this become such a problem? Well, in, in my research, the, the jury system or the idea of a jury was initially touted as a paradigm of popular justice. So go all the way back to Blackstone's commentaries and look at the founding documents for the United States. We see the jury system mentioned, and it is this paradigm of popular justice, the idea that citizens are participating in handing out justice to their fellow citizens. And so 
this was considered a brilliant idea. But even then, at the same time, exclusionary practices were already becoming ingrained, even, even then. Uh, for example, of what I discuss in the book, there was this idea initially of limiting jurors to what they call free men. And the, the idea of free men doesn't necessarily indicate a person's status with respect to enslavement or servitude, but the term excluded people in bondage. And it excluded them because free men, the, the idea was that you had to own property. And so clearly, if you were enslaved, you did not own any property. So it wasn't related to enslavement, but the terms of being a free man excluded people who were enslaved. So right away, th there was exclusion. We're, we only want these people to be jurors. And obviously, that term, just by its very nature, free men excluded women as well. So very exclusionary practices. Then President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. 14th Amendment was ratified. And so now the idea was people who were formerly enslaved should have all of the civil rights, including being able to participate in the jury system process, just as everyone else was participating. But a lot of states weren't having that. So that's when the, the idea of how do we now exclude people who were formerly enslaved from participating in the jury process. And there were likely several motivations for that. But one of the motivations was clearly that the, the criminal justice system was all about prosecuting those who were formerly enslaved. And so we don't want them uh, on the jury as well. And so we had states creating statutes, uh, again, in the wake of the 14th Amendment, in the wake of uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, we had states such as West Virginia creating statutes that said jury service is limited to white people. So no non-white people on juries. Sure. And so the case of Strouder versus West Virginia, which is one of the first cases that I discuss in the book, the court determined, no, that statute is unconstitutional. Those who have recently been freed from enslavement are entitled to citizenship and all of the privileges that go along with that. And they are entitled to a jury selection process that does not exclude members of their race. So you don't have a right to have Black people on the jury, but you have a right to have a system that does not exclude them from the process. So we have that foundational case. So in the wake of that, then states started thinking, well, how else can we begin to exclude? So that's kind of the, 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 the process. It started off as an exclusionary process with the freeman status, and then it moved to direct exclusion with statutes after the 14th Amendment. And then once the court said, no, you can't do that, then it became a lot of other ways. How else can we exclude? If we can't have a statute, what other ways can we come up with to exclude Black people from juries? So that's sort of the foundational 
notion of how exclusion started. No, and I appreciate sort of that historical aspect. And the Strouder case, I was really surprised at how long and how commonly cited it was throughout history. Yes. Even like well into very recent recent right. cases. So when you say it's foundational, you mean it's foundational. It I mean, is. It, it makes up a ton of the body of case law. And yes. I was, as I was reading the opinion, I think I was really, how did I, it was, when I was reading the opinion, I was like, these people who are deciding this case, who think they're being equitable, even their language throughout the opinion shows that they're consciously or unconsciously biased uh, or racist. Um, right. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, I mean, obviously that's not, shouldn't be shocking to anybody, uh, sadly, but I, I do want to just quote it. It says, this is one of the series of constitutional provisions having a common purpose, namely securing to a race recently emancipated, a race that through many generations had been held in slavery, all the civil rights that the superior race enjoy today. I was like, wow, did, did you hear that when you wrote it? Right, right. You know what I mean? Like, and yeah. this is the adjudicating body. So of course, there's no way that these things like are not inextricably intertwined right absolutely absolutely that that is that was something that caught my eye as well yeah I mean I think that particular quote it just it very much embodies that even the entities that were supposed to be promoting and structuring and supporting this equality are inherently already at the start unable to do so whether consciously or unconsciously Right. And, and I, I have a question uh, that, that follows the case, because that jumped out as, at me as well as I was reading the, the case, the, the language. And so the question that I raise after the case is this, this, well, first of all, starting with this idea that language is very important, and it's especially important in U.S. Supreme Court cases, because people who read those cases take their cues from the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is saying this then this this is something that I can say, or this is something that I should believe. And I'm speaking mainly of people in the legal profession. And that language can then help to sort of establish the tenor of future debates. And so if the Supreme Court itself, even though the outcome of the case was beneficial to those who were formerly enslaved, but the language that the court used to say that people who were formerly enslaved had these rights, the language sets the framework, the framework in which people have these discussions and the framework in which they either accept or don't accept. Imagine a case that talks about the white race as the superior race and someone reading that, how so, someone who is disinclined to have black people on juries are reading that the white race is the superior race. How might that impact whether they accept the Supreme Court's opinion or not? And so language is very important uh, and the language that the court used not only to describe the white race, but to, to describe those recently free from enslavement is, is very concerning and likely set the tenor for future debates about this issue. Sure, I mean, as we said, 
you know, this case in and of itself carried on for hundreds of over a hundred years. I mean, it's not like this was just some random case that they said some terrible things in. Right. I mean, the language in this case is very clearly enduring. And so to see language like that in something so enduring is troublesome to say the least, obviously. But I think, as you say, it's, it's a, it's a real example of the systematic element here. That's right. right? That's right. The notion of the court othering people, right? Yeah. Once, once you've divided and othered people, then it's easier sometimes for other entities to discriminate against those people because the Supreme Court, again, in a case that is going to be in the case books from now until the Supreme Court itself has othered those people. And it's interesting, too, because you'll notice that othering was like a really big theme for them overall in this decision, because they said as well, they're like, well, you know, you you can't discriminate based on race, but that's not to say that the state can't prescribe other qualifications and forms of discrimination based on things like being a citizen and age and education. Obviously, there was like a literacy requirement in a lot of areas. And so discrimination, it seems to them, was kind of rife in a lot of different forms. Obviously, we're focused on race here, but I just wanted to kind of point that out that you know, a lot of the things they said, at least in my opinion, it was like they would talk out of one hand in one part and then talk out of another, their other hand in another part. A lot of what they said just seemed to contradict each other. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And 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 that perhaps was reflective of the times. Yeah. We have a constitutional amendment that says we have to do certain things, but we're also a product of the times. And the, the, this this Supreme Court in the Strouder case uh, is very close to people be, being freed from enslavement. So so they're right in the mix of what is happening. And uh, being a product of your times is not necessarily an excuse for racism. But and I hate to use the cliche, it is what it is. And so sure. they were that's that's what they saw. That's what they believed. And their beliefs are reflected in that language. But then here's a law that says equal rights. And so they have to to do that. Uh, And then, by the way, they were also at that time, because the the 14th Amendment was relatively new as well. Mm -hmm. So they were also struggling with, well, how do we interpret this? How do we figure this out? So so there there was a lot going on in, in those early cases. Right, right. Well, and, you know, the Strouder case is kind of an example, obviously, a very blatant tactics, right? Because these things were enshrined by statute. And your book very clearly articulates how these things became less blatant and much more embedded into different processes. So would you be able to explain for us how this problem continued once the Supreme Court started saying that statutes like this are not going to pass muster under the 14th Amendment? Sure, sure. And, and, and so, so the idea then was how do we go about excluding people? Because this is the states, this is what we want to do. How do we do this without actually putting a statute on the books? And so, so one of the other famous cases, the case of Norris versus Alabama, which is famously known as the Scottsboro Boys uh, case. And 
this this case is pretty typical of what was going on uh, at the time. We have a young black man accused of raping a white woman, and he sought to quash the grand jury indictment and also to uh, quash the trial veneer, the trial jury, arguing that black people were intentionally excluded from both. Now they weren't excluded by statute. They were excluded because jury commissioners were leaving qualified Black people's names off the rolls. So there's no statute, but now people are just leaving the names off. And when they were questioned about it, their response would be, well, there aren't any qualified Black people Mm -hmm. because they had education qualifications. In some instances, they had property. You had to own property. You had to pay certain taxes. And so their response was, there are no legitimate qualified Black people to serve on the jury, and that's why their names are not on the rolls. And the court pushed back on that in Norris versus Alabama and said, because this was 1935. And so we're some decades away from people being freed from enslavement. The court said, as we look at some of the progress that has occurred, Black men, because again, we were still at a period where only men were serving on juries. Black men had reached levels of success. Some were college educated, some were property owners. And so this lack of qualification excuse had run its course. The court said you can't use that anymore. So so again, this is this back and forth, people finding ways to exclude, and then the court coming in eventually saying, no, you can't do that anymore. So that that was one example, just simply leaving people's names off the list and saying, we, well, we, we just can't find any qualified Black people. Then uh, in Chapter 3, I have a series of cases from Texas, which I call the Texas cases. They are a doozy, Renata. They are yes. doozy. <laughs> they are. And uh, and I didn't certainly didn't mean to single out Texas because this is something that was going on across the country, mainly in the South, but they are symbolic of a state trying to exclude Black people. And every time the court comes back and says, no, you can't do that, then they sort of switch gears a little bit, but always focused on how can we exclude. So it just illustrates how one state, but but it wasn't limited, it wasn't by any means limited uh, to Texas. Uh, and so what Texas had, what persisted uh, uh, until very recently, was what is called this, this key man system for selecting jurors, and also sometimes known as pick a pal. So the jury commissioners would go out into the community and identify jurors whose names could be put on the list to be called for jury service. So it was a personal acquaintance system. And of course, in Texas during the 40s and 50s, there was Jim Crow. Right. Jim Crow was the order of the day. And so if you're a white jury commissioner, your task is to go out into the community and find personal acquaintances whose names you could put on the jury list. Chances are your list is going to be 100% white. And so that's what was happening. That's what was happening in Texas. And the court repeatedly said this. Well, the the court was essentially saying the process is okay. The process of picking a pal is okay. So that doesn't violate the Constitution. 
but the way you're implementing it is incorrect, mm-hmm. uh, which is troublesome in itself because having people picking personal acquaintances is problematic. But the court said, no, that process is okay. You're just implementing it incorrectly. You need to get out into the broader community, essentially get to know yeah, some black Make people. more friends, basically. Right, make more friends, and then put those people's names on the list. And so with having the court accept the process as constitutionally sound then meant that the court was relying on people, people who are living, white people who are living in and continuing a Jim Crow system, relying on them to step out of that mold and get to know black people and put them on the jury. And of course, that, that was resisted repeatedly. But when the court finally said, no, this is what you have to do, then it evolved to, okay, we'll pick one Black person. And so then it evolved into a system of tokenism, picking one Black person to be on the jury and the idea that, okay, well, this should be constitutional mandates because we do have a Black person on the jury. And the court came back and said, no, tokenism is not okay. Because people, again, they have a, a right to, the defendants meaning, have a right to not have people from their race uh, excluded based on race, but also not to have them included based on race. And so if you're, you're engaging in a system of tokenism, you're including a person simply because of their race, and that does not meet constitutional uh, standards. Then in other cases, the case of Brown versus Allen, for example, there were uh, property ownership requirements. Uh, and they, they essentially, and I, and I make this point in the book, what was happening in the, the jury selection process was very similar to what was going on with the voting process uh, at the time. So voting rights and the right to be on the jury system were sort of following parallel tracks at that time. And so the same kinds of literacy tests um, were that were being used for, for allowing Black people to vote were also being used for, uh, could you be on the jury? Um, and so they were essentially this combined systemically racist process of keeping Black people from voting and keeping them off the jury was essentially keeping them from participating in uh, two of the most important institutions in society. So, so that's, those were some of the ways with the, 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 the jury lists, the, the poll taxes, the educational literacy tests. Those were some of the ways that states sought to ex- continue to exclude Black people from the jury process, but also exclude them from voting. Yeah, I'm reading these materials, I think these were the materials that I spent the most time with. You you put a lot of really, mostly because they're just, there's a lot to think about. If you're, I mean, you're, if you're really reading these and critically thinking about them, there's so much to, to consider. And I, one quick note off the top, I I still cannot believe that the Picapel jury selection process was available and running and working in Texas until 2015. (laughs) That completely blew my mind. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And then you also have, okay, so after the, I believe, yeah, after the Smith versus Texas case, which was in 1940, you have these, this series of questions 
where it was a summary from the Texas State Historical Association. But these questions, I thought about them a lot. And so I want to read them and then see, you know, why did you maybe include them? What did you hope that people would consider with these types of questions? So you say, under these circumstances, why would the court believe the law itself was fair, but simply subject to abuse? Is it possible to produce fair laws when the system itself is structured to promote racism? Who created the system of racism? Who created the laws? Are the laws somehow separate from the system of embedded racism? Yes, so so this question or these questions were designed to get students to think about this idea that the court said, the law is fair, it's just that the people are not implementing it properly. But the people who are charged with implementing it are the same people who created the law. They designed the law to work exactly the way it is working. The people who designed a pick a pal system designed it because they expected that the jury commissioners would be white and they would choose white people. So it, it, it was just surprising to me that the court would rely upon those same people because they created the law. The law is part of this systemically racist system. And now you're asking them, step outside of that and do something that is not racist. Um, and, and I just, I thought, uh, as as Texas eventually, well, many uh, states got rid of that pick a pal system early on, uh, beginning with, um, I think, on the federal level, it was abolished uh, in the nineteen sixties, I believe. Mm-hmm. But other states realized this is not going to work for us, and so, but because it's the the process itself is so very subjective allows racism to seep in. But then again, that's what it was designed to do. So it's doing exactly what it was designed to do. It was created in a systemically racist society, and it was doing exactly what it was designed to do. And so to say that implementation was the problem ignores, I think, the fact that, no, it's not implementation, it's the law itself that's the problem. And that's what needs to be changed. Thank you for sharing that, because it makes me because I, I like I said, I thought through these questions myself. And and one of the things I was thinking of is kind of related to what you're saying as well. It it brought me back to the Strouder opinion and thinking that I think part of this is that the judges who are sitting in their position right now making these decisions think that they themselves are able to step out of context and become you know, those blank slates, those purely objective people. Right. But as we can see by reading just these opinions, that's just not true. Correct. Right. But they're superimposing what they think they're able to do upon other people. And it's like, not only are you not really able to do it, but that's a really big ask of someone else. And the likelihood that someone will be able to act in that way in good faith or not even in good faith, like purposefully, is pretty slim. Correct. Um, and so I don't think they were wholly analyzing the situation from an, an accurate perspective at all. Um, and, and that actually leads me to in the, I believe, let's make sure, yeah, the Atkins case, you have a POV question after that. And 
I, I want to share that here. So you say the Atkins case was the case where they had that pick a pal and then they made friends with one or made friends quote uh, with one black person, but they said, we're only going to have one black person on the jury. Like they weren't going to go beyond that, which in and of itself was ruled to be problematic. But your POV reflection says, reflect on the jury commissioner's statements about why they chose the lone black juror. Then imagine what it must have been like to be that solitary black grand juror in a room with 11 white grand jurors after the U.S. Supreme Court mandated that outright exclusion was unconstitutional? Would it be easy to speak up or to challenge the opinions of others? And it's like, absolutely not. I mean, for so many reasons, obviously you have just your what would be your physical and literal right. safety, right? Your sense of security. But you also have these questions of, or this pressure. And I think this is something that, I mean, this is not a novel thought. This is talked about when you talk about tokenism in general, but this idea that one person represents a whole body of people or is able to convey all of the thoughts and feelings and perspectives of a whole group, just because they're linked by one defining factor here, obviously it's race. And I can't even imagine what that must feel like to be that type of, in that type of situation. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, that, and that's what I wanted to have students focus on. What, what would it be like to sit in that room? What would it be like to have an opinion that disagrees with the majority? Mm-hmm. What would it be like to think about, well, when I walk out of this room, what might happen to me? These people know me. I live in this community. If I disagree mm. with something, what might happen to me uh, as a result of disagreement? And so. So this this idea of including this well the idea of tokenism and including one black person which which they were sort of you know, open about we're just going to include one person uh, they were definitely open about right, that they were very open about that it, it's an example of of incremental remediation is mm-hmm. is how I framed it in in the casebook because again the Supreme Court kept saying no you can't exclude black people as a group so then they said well okay we're not going to we're, we're, we're just going to include one, but <clears throat> the ramifications for that one person uh, and their impact, their, their potential to impact anything in the criminal justice system was negligible to, to probably non-existent, right? Because again, as you said, you've got the, if this is the grand jury, you've got, you know, multiple other white people around the table looking at you or in the courtroom looking at you and saying, you think this person committed this crime, right? So then you, you know, the, the, what choices does that one black person have? And then in the deliberation room, if we're talking about a trial jury, again, the pressure, there's already pressure in, in sometimes in jury deliberation uh, context, but the pressure on that lone black person would have to be incredible. Yeah, no, I, I really, I thought a lot about that. And I, I, your POV reflections in the book are are incredibly well done. Well, thank you. Um, yeah. So we've talked a little bit about sort of this systematic problem and kind of how the problem has evolved from literal statute bars to inclusion. And then we have exclusionary lists. So discriminating either by not including them on the list at all or by essentially weeding them out by having other requirements that tended to bar groups of people in their entirety. 
from those types of practices, where did things evolve to, to cr- continue this racism within the jury system? So from, from that point, most states eventually got the message. We have to have proper lists. We have to get rid of this pick a system. We have to use a list that brings more Black people into the, 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 the possibility of being on the jury, get, get their names on the list. And so once states did that, then it became a question of, okay, once Black people are on the jury panel as prospective jurors, how can we exclude them? And that's where peremptory challenges came in. The possibility of excluding people, even though you have included them on the jury list, even though they've come into the courtroom, now you exclude them in uh, once you're in the courtroom. And so, so, so peremptory challenges could could be a whole hour uh, unto itself. Sure. And uh, um, I have a, a chapter that deals with it. And so the court caught on to that pretty quickly, the, the, how peremptory challenges were being used in a racist fashion to eliminate Black people from the jury. Um, and so the Swain case, which was the first case that dealt with it, said that in order to, because the def- defendants were obviously concerned that they saw Black faces come in for the prospective jury panel, but then no black people were on the jury. So so this is a problem. And what the court in Swain said was, well, a defendant needs to show systemic, purposeful racism in case after case by the prosecutor in that jurisdiction. So the court was essentially in 1965 in Swain versus Alabama putting the burden on a black defendant to prove that there is systemic racism, which again, I have a a POV reflection on that. Of course there's racism, but the the court said, no, you have to show case after case that this particular DA has excluded black people through the use of peremptory challenges. Yeah, no, it's so I I just have to, if you don't mind, I just have to say that when, when I was looking at that and I was thinking like, I, you know, I was really embracing this POV perspective thing you have going on throughout the book. And I started thinking about, well, what if I was the attorney, right? The defense, the defense counsel for that type of case. And I don't even know, because really you don't know who's going to be on the jury until you've done the voir dire and you've done all of the challenges. And so quite frankly, you can't be certain that there isn't going to be a black person or there is going to be any kind of conduct until all of that is done. And so how do you even adequately attempt to prepare for that? I mean, you'd have to do it all with sort of the inference or assumption that it's such a pattern or practice, they're automatically going to do it, which at that point, it's like, do you really need me to show you all of that anyway? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that, that just seems so absurd when I really thought about it. Yes. Yes. It was absolutely absurd because again, if, if the court just looked at everything that was going on in society, of course there's systemic racism. But asking a black defendant to prove that up 
prove that the, that people were excluded and not just in your trial, but prove that they've been excluded in other cases. <clears throat> so you'd have to get access to what happened in, uh, in previous cases. Mm-hmm. You'd have to determine why a person was, uh, it, it, it was just a wholly inadequate way to deal with this issue of peremptory challenges, which the court ultimately recognized in the Batson case that no one is likely to overcome this hurdle of proving systemic racism through the use of peremptory challenges if we ask them to prove it in a case in case after case. So what Batson did was to say, no, you can, as a as a defendant, and this was 1986, you can rely on evidence in your own case to demonstrate this purposeful discrimination. And so the court in in that defendant's case can look at all of the surrounding evidence, including the pattern of strikes that the DA used. And the defendant would have to make a prima facie showing that the DA was motivated by racism in making certain uh, peremptory strikes. And once they make that prima facie showing, then the burden shifts to the government to offer a race-neutral explanation. And so that cured the problem of requiring defendants to have to go back in time and look uh, to determine in case after case whether there had been purposeful discrimination, which was almost impossible. But it also created another issue in the sense that now we're giving them the burden of showing that this was purposeful discrimination in, in the strike. So the court has to first make that determination, but then they have to, and the court also has to analyze whether the government's explanation is a race neutral explanation. I do want to just point out here, so for our listeners, in case you are not overly familiar with sort of these challenges, so you have like a four-cause challenge. Those challenges are maybe a person is outright saying that they couldn't decide the case fairly. Maybe they're a family member of someone involved in the case, right? So those individuals are four-cause challenged and removed from being on the jury. But a peremptory challenge is a challenge in which no reason for the person being removed from the the jury pool is stated. They don't have to give a reason. <laughs> and so, and and historically, these challenges have been really revered. Uh, and oddly enough, they were revered because they were part of our legal system inherited from England. And England has done away with them and did away with them a very long time ago. <laughs> but you know, I digress. Yes, uh, they did. <laughs> But that was one of the questions. I'm like, England got rid of these, didn't they? Like, why are we saying that we need to keep them because England had them? This makes no sense anyway. Right. Uh, but my point is, historically speaking, these challenges didn't require you to give any kind of reason at all. Correct. And so in Batson, they were very clear that at the point where a state's attorney has to give a reason for doing the peremptory challenge that they've they've struck or given that they say not just some sort of very obvious basic vague unhelpful reason like uh i i wasn't being discriminatory or i just felt like that person wasn't a good fit they do say that there has to be 
a little bit more than that. And that really is a big shift in the, in the system itself. Sure. Um, and so I just wanted to point that out and give a little context on that in case sure. someone's not familiar with like the different types of challenges. Yes, absolutely. So, so it is, it is a shift because again, now we're focused on the defendant's trial. We don't have to look at past history with this particular DA. That was a really big change too, in the sense that like, I couldn't believe prior to that, that it was like, if they're always discriminatory, then that's bad. Right. But if they've never been discriminatory, but they're committing discrimination in your case, right. we don't care. That's right. I mean, that's essentially what the old yeah. standard said. That's, yes, <laughs> that's exactly what Swain uh, said. We, if you can't prove it happened before, then it's probably not happening here, no matter what happened in your own personal trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so once, but once the, the standard uh, in Batson came along, the problem then became became proving racism, which is what the defendant had to do, and then uh, the court determining whether the DA's explanation was race neutral. But remember, because we're still still dealing with a system that has systemically excluded black people on all levels, particularly the judiciary. What we're doing with the Batson standard is likely asking a white judge to determine whether a black person has demonstrated racism on the part of the DA in terms of those peremptory strikes. And then having if if, if the defendant is able to, to meet that burden, then having to determine whether the the prosecutor has given race neutral explanation. So those those are the the difficulties, and and again, this is probably oversimplified because Batson again could be an entire hour unto itself. But those were some of the difficulties that came about as a result of changing the system. So so the change was certainly well received because now defendants could focus on their own trials, but it also created additional burdens that might not play out well in a system that was still struggling with systemic racism. The, the Flowers case um, is, is another wonderful, well, not, not wonderful in the sense of what happened in the case, but in terms of illustrating this notion of peremptory strikes, sort of giving us the, the full spectrum of how those peremptory strikes can be used in a racist fashion and this is a case that that is 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 fairly recent. Um, so so, you know, Flowers versus Mississippi. We have a, a defendant who was tried six times. That is absurd. <laughs> Absolutely absurd. Uh, six times, and over the course of six cases, forty-one of forty-two prospective black jurors were peremptorily struck from the jury. And the case was sent back multiple times from even the higher courts in Mississippi, flat out saying that essentially the prosecutor who who handled, I think, all six cases based yes. on what I read, yes, uh, was being discriminatory. I, I, how did this prosecutor continue to handle this? I can't believe I can't. I, there was a, <laughs> when I read this decision, I was like, oh my god! And it's from 2019, so Absolutely. definitely yeah. recent. Yeah, so so very recent. And and again, 41 of the 42 prospective black jurors over six cases. And 
so so what the reason that the flowers case is interesting is that first of all it it actually illustrates what the court in Swain versus Alabama was talking about mm-hmm. so flowers in that case could have met the Swain standard of showing in case after case the prosecutor but the, but all the cases were his so in his point, own cases right, in, in his own case so he could point he didn't need to go and get anybody else's record because he had his own six or five previous cases to show where the court is essentially saying, no, you prosecutor have discriminated against black jurors. So it, it, it is a, it's, it's an, finally we have an illustration where someone is able to use the case after case, which by the way, I wanted to, to point out that in Batson, the court did not get rid of the Swain standard. So that standard is still out there. So if a person can prove discrimination in case after case, then that is still a standard that they can use. It's just that it's almost an impossible standard to meet. But here, Flowers uh, could have shown that. But also in his uh, specific case, that sixth trial, what the court said is, again, if you're able to show that there's been discrimination and the explanation is is not race neutral, then there's been a violation of the Constitution. And so what the court looked at, and this is 2019, the court looked at whether the, the Black juror who was struck were there similarly situated white jurors who were not struck, right? So if you struck a Black juror and you didn't strike the white juror, then that's likely not going to be race neutral. And so there was a, an example of that. There were several white jurors who acknowledged that they had ties to Flowers' family, yet a Black juror was struck for having some tenuous connection to his family. And there were white jurors who said, oh, yeah, I know them. And they were allowed to remain on the jury. So what the Flowers case did was to apply the Batson standard, looking at how questions were being asked of the jurors, who was struck and who was not struck. And again, were people similarly situated on the panel, but a Black person was struck and a white person was allowed to remain on uh, the jury. So uh, Flowers, as as I note in the uh, case, was eventually the the, the government uh, miraculously decided not to try him uh, a seventh time, and uh, he was released and uh, sued the state of Mississippi. So not shocking, as he probably not shocking at all. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. I- I think I, I do have to say I give the Supreme Court a lot of props, I guess, for that written opinion. I, I found that the opinion was well written. It did a really good job of exploring all of the facts. Yes. Um, I think. And I one of the things they talk a lot about in Flowers is the concept of disparate questioning. Yes. Right. And so I found that concept really fascinating too. The idea that they were asking maybe the white jurors like three questions and they were asking the the black jurors like 30 and then also challenging them being on the jury and so they say that despair questioning alone is not enough to say that there's been an issue but that it's it got evidentiary weight and that it's something that can be considered and and so i think the the facts in that case are very they speak for themselves uh and they do a good job of including those oh absolutely um, and one yeah. one other point that I that I wanted to raise here is Please. the 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 idea 
so we we see the see in the flowers case the the DA eliminating black people fr- from the jury, which raises the question: Why? Why did the DA not want black people on the jury? And and part of that is also related to stereotypes and bias that black people could not sit on that jury and fairly decide whether Flowers had committed this crime. So underlying that is also another level of structural racism that says black people won't be fair. Black people will tolerate criminality. They, even if they see that he committed the crime, they'll still acquit him. So that idea needs to change as well because that's clearly, why else would 41 out of 42 black jurors be eliminated? So there's, there's a bias underlying that idea as well. Yeah, and I that reminds me too. There was another case in in these, and I'm so sorry, I forgot the case name, but it was the case where the criminal defendant was attempting to strike people from the jury based on race. Um, yes, Georgia versus McCollum. Thank you. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so that raises another question, right? You know, can defendants, since they're the ones who are looking for a fair co- fair cross section and so on, also try to get people off the jury based on race and why would they feel a need to do so right like you just said why would because I think in that case it was white defendants there were racial undertones to the crime itself I don't think the term existed when the case happened but it sounded as if it was hate crime or hate crime adjacent right and so they brought up questions of whether or not there should be people of certain races on the jury and you know it makes you think about what inherently makes you think one race is able to set those things aside and another isn't and how entrenched and embedded those thought processes and natural sadly I think embedded inclinations are within the people who are running and making the system absolutely and and to to the extent you know, sort of a, a chicken and egg thing, because to the extent that Black people have a negative impression of the criminal justice system, it's because the criminal justice system has treated people in a disparate fashion for decades. And so there is a, a negative, in some instances, a negative impression of the system But that doesn't mean, and I I make this point later in the book, that doesn't mean that people can't set that aside and look at the facts. We we want impartial jurors. We don't want jurors who can come to court and not have any beliefs. That's That's not what impartial juror means. It means that someone who can come into court and set whatever biases they have aside and look at the facts fairly and objectively in the case before them and make a decision based on those facts. And so people come into court with all kinds of history, all kinds of biases. Sure, every person. That's right. So so there's nothing wrong with having that negative impression. In fact, it again, it's it's likely well founded given the experience of black people with the criminal justice system. But, but can't people set that aside? And people don't seem to think that Black people can do that in a fair way. So, you know, obviously, based on this 
not in depth, super in depth discussion, but sort of this overview of peremptory challenges and their history and the troubles with them. Uh-huh. Obviously, it's especially with the Flowers case being so recent, it seems that peremptory challenges and their use is problematic in regards to racism today, and then that persists. Mm-hmm. And so, what other main components continue to manifest racism within the jury system today beyond peremptory challenges? Well, one of the other, and, and this is sort of following along the spectrum. So, so once a person, actually, a black person, actually gets on the jury, well, then what happens, right? So, I have a chapter that deals with the deliberative process. What happens in once once black people get into the jury room? So we already know that we don't have large numbers of black people on the jury panel, and so once the actual jury is selected, there may be one or two black people on the jury going back into that deliberation room. And so I have a chapter that looks at stereotypes, biases, and intimidation in the deliberation room. Because again, that's another way to disallow participation of black people in the process. So they're actually on the jury. So the the state can't be criticized for leaving them off the jury rolls. The state can't be criticized for peremptorily striking them from the jury because they actually made it onto the jury, but now they're back in the deliberation room and the impact of other jurors on these one or two Black people, what what can happen there? And so one of the things about the jury process, which I think is rightly so, is that the, the deliberation process is sacrosanct. And again, that's for a good reason. We want people to be able to go back into that deliberation room, be able to speak their minds, and they they should not be questioned about uh, what they've said in that room. Uh, and so we, we keep that closed off from society. In fact, there's a rule of evidence that says you, you cannot, uh, Rule 606B, which uh, on the federal level, and then many states have a similar rule, uh, it, it limits the questioning of the jurors or what happened in the deliberation room to external influences, right? So did, did someone say, oh, uh, I read a newspaper article about the case and this is how I based, this is what I based my decision on. So something external that happened, that's the only way that a defendant can impeach the jury. Well, what if in the, the deliberation room, what if someone is shouting racial epithets? What if someone says, well, I, I, I have some black neighbors and I don't like them. And, uh, you know, th- that's that's my opinion. And so uh, I'm just going to share my opinion about black people. Right. So so what if that kind of thing is going on? Or what if a black person speaks up and no one listens or someone discounts what is continually discounting what the person is saying? Right. Because the idea is that every juror should be able to participate and be heard. So what if that kind of thing is happening? In, should, should the defendant then be able to challenge what happened during that deliberative process? And the court in the Pena Rodriguez, Colorado, uh, uh, Pena Rodriguez case said, yes. So the juror has to make a clear statement that they have relied on racial stereotypes. So this is what the defendant, again, has to prove up that a juror made a clear statement that they relied upon racial stereotypes or animus to convict. 
then the court is going to look at whether that behavior resulted in a denial of a fair trial. So what the court is really relying upon is overt racial bias. Did this person make an overt statement? And did that statement then have a an impact on uh, the outcome? That's a uh, high that's, bar. It I is mean, a very high bar because- That's a big ask. Because overt right. and clear, I mean, that that's- you have to say something very blatant in order for that to count. And most people are not. They're not going to to do that, Uh, especially, in fact, if a person does that, they would likely have been excluded earlier on. That's (laughs) what I was thinking. They would have already been for for cause, probably stricken from the the jury because that was another thing I thought about. Yeah, so please continue. Yeah, so, so most racism today is not of the overt uh, kind. It is unconscious. It is subtle. It is based upon stereotypes. And sometimes, again, it's expressed in a very subtle way. So it flies below uh, the radar, right? So um, a a person not understanding why uh, a Black person would dress a certain way, right? So they get into the deliberation room and they've been shown pictures of the defendant dressed in certain colors or dressed with their pants sagging and they have a negative impression of that and because they don't understand or you know this is something that they associate negatively with black people Mm -hmm. and they decide to convict on that basis right that's very subtle they don't they're not saying anything bad they're not using the n-word but they decided to convict because eh, something about the way this person was dressed I think they were probably guilty. They just seem so, like the type kind of thing. That's right. It seems like the type of person who would have committed this crime. Mm-hmm. And so it's that implicit bias where people, again, if you ask them a question, they would probably not be able to express that what they were thinking was racist because they don't think it is. They just have a negative association uh, in their minds. And so, so it's the implicit bias that needs to be focused on, quite frankly, uh, rather than the overt bias, because that that's really likely to be the case. And so one of the other cases that I include is the, the Berhe case, which I think is just a wonderful case uh, in which the court in Washington, so it's not a Supreme Court case, the, case the, the court really went through and explained this notion of implicit bias. So as we're looking at the, uh, impeaching the jury, the court says we, we can't just focus on overt bias. We have to look at implicit bias because that's the problem. And we have to have a solution that is uniquely tailored to implicit bias. And so what they come up with is the standard. If, if we're looking at what the juror said, then the question the court said we have to ask is whether an objective observer who is aware of implicit bias could view race as a factor in the verdict. What would a reasonable person who knows about implicit bias, what would they think about what this juror said? Hmm. Would it mean to them that this juror included race as a factor in their verdict? So, and, and whether that's workable or not, that's one of the questions that I uh, pose after the case, because 
so who is this objective observer yeah. who is familiar with implicit bias? So, so, so that this, this is not a cure-all, but it's a start. It's a start at focusing not just on someone who is in the jury room using the N-word. It's focusing on people who may say things that, again, to them may seem race-neutral, but reveal the bias. And so what would a person who knows about implicit bias, a reasonable person, what would they think about what the jurors said? I mean, even acknowledging that implicit bias is a part of this process and a part of right. the human condition and something that people need to be cognizant of and thinking of is a huge step overall. I mean, I know that right, right now, even within the judiciary itself, that's a really big push point for training judiciary on how to recognize that they are human and they are people and they have implicit biases that they need to monitor and take into account when they're doing their job and doing their duty. And so when I saw that, that was, I thought, wow, I mean, this is a really, it's a good showing at least of how those things are becoming more in the forefront of throughout the legal system process as they should be. Yes, absolutely. And and what I've noticed, uh, occasionally I'll watch a, a trial on uh, the Law and Crime Network or, or whatever, whatever it's called. Um, and what I've noticed is that judges are giving juries instructions. So they're giving them instructions on the front end before the case starts. And then on the back end, before the case is submitted to them for deliberation, giving them instructions on implicit bias. And uh, one judge said, you know, if you, if you, if you have, as you go back and you deliberate, if your first thought is, oh, I think this person is absolutely guilty. And then obviously this is particularly important in cases where we're talking about uh, cross racial, the, the, the juror is white and the defendant is black. Mm. Your first thought is, oh, this person is guilty. Step back from that. Step back from that and ask yourself, why do I think that? What are the facts of this case that lead me to believe that? And so, so it's, it's a matter of examining why you have come to this conclusion and considering whether implicit bias is playing any role in that process. Well, now that we've covered sort of how we got to where we are and sort of, I'd say, the two big ways that you know, there are many, but two two big ways that racism is manifesting within the jury system today. Mm-hmm. How exactly can maybe people participating in juries or grassroots advocates or attorneys or law students, you know, how can they help make this problem go away or finally see sort of end a, a, res, a resolution to this issue what can they do to combat racism in juries what are some things in the future you'd like to see happen one of the things that's that's happening well actually happening here in Arizona is getting rid of peremptory challenges and um, in uh, the Batson case Justice Marshall actually made that suggestion. And so Arizona is sort of now in, in the midst of this big experiment because back in 2022, they said no more peremptory challenges. And, and the, then this was the Supreme Court. 
the legislature tried to overturn that, but was not successful. And so uh, this is the big experiment going on here. And so hopefully other states will be looking in on this. I know a lot of research is being done on what's now happening. Are we impaneling juries that are more diverse as a result of the absence of peremptory challenges? So that's one area of reform. The other, so so this is a two-sided coin. The other side of it is promoting the idea that jury service is important. Because one of the other issues that, that doesn't get talked about as much is that, uh, and this is not necessarily limited to Black people, but uh, people of color generally, and also uh, people who are struggling with finances, housing, or food insecurity, receive a jury summons and they simply don't show up. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this is an issue where Black people may be saying to themselves, I'm not going to bother with that. The system is not fair. I'm not going to participate in that. Or there may be other issues that prevent them, uh, the, the inability to have child care, the belief that perhaps they might lose their job, even though it's illegal to fire a person from jury service, but the belief that they'll find a way to get rid of me if I take off, if I have to take off two weeks for jury duty. And if I have to take off two weeks, I might not get paid and I can't survive on the $60 that they're going to give me for jury service. So, so there's a lack of participation. So even when Black people do get summoned to come to jury service, there's a lack of participation. And so making sure that people understand that serving on a jury is important. It's important to have your voice heard in that part of society, just as important as voting. It's important to have your voice heard in the criminal justice system. And uh, one judge, and I talk about this in the book, uh, if a person, because so what happens when a person ignores a summons is that in many jurisdictions, uh, a warrant could be issued for their arrest or they could get fined. There are consequences for ignoring a jury summons. But that's so if we think about the carrot and the stick, that's the stick. And what one judge, and I believe again, this was in Washington, decided, well, why not? Why don't we use a carrot? And so the people who were skipping out on the summons, what this judge did was to invite them to come into, well, invite, I use that in quotation marks, just tell them, <laughs> okay, <laughs> you need to come into court and have a discussion with them about how important jury service is and how important it is to have their voice be part of that system. Now, of course, that doesn't cure all of the other circumstances. That's not that's still not going to get a person child care. That's still not going to uh, satisfy them in terms of, am I going to lose money, lose my job, uh, lose my housing as a result of this? Um, so, so there are other things that need to be done, dealt with in society to promote jury service, but, but you know, that's one small step, making sure people understand that it is important and their voice uh, is important in the, the criminal justice system. One of the, there's a line in Flowers 
that made me think of what you're talking about. And it says, other than voting, serving on a jury is the most substantial opportunity that most citizens have to participate in the democratic process. And that's right. Yeah, I think that's a a fair point. And that, that's absolutely right. Yeah. And so what other types of things? Okay, so we have educating potential jurors and just having people sort of embrace this democratic process. What about things like changing the rules surrounding felons? Sure. What yeah, might that, that look like? A, yeah, that's a section uh, that I also talk about. Um, the the idea of, <clears throat> excuse me, felon disenfranchisement has, has a lengthy history. The this notion that you're excluded, you have these civil restrictions, even though you served your time, you now have these civil restrictions. You can't vote, you can't serve on a jury. So this was another way, uh, and courts have recognized, this was another way to exclude Black people from these two important processes in a democratic society. You can't vote. So once, so once you have a conviction, so we, we bring you into the system and you're convicted by a jury that excluded Black people from being on the jury, once you're convicted and you served your time, now you can't be part of a jury and you can't vote. And it, th- these civil restrictions were sometimes referred to as a civil death because it was this idea that we, don't, that we as a society don't recognize you anymore after you have been convicted of a felony. But why? Uh, why? Why would we say that these are the two things that you cannot do? Because, well, because as you just said, these are the two most important processes, and this was another way to exclude Black people from those processes. And so, uh, some states have changed the the laws on voting, and also uh, whether people who have a prior felony conviction can be on a jury, and and, and that's a good thing. That's a positive thing, but as I also point out in some of the questions that follow those cases, there could be downsides, right? And so if you're a defense attorney, you have to think about what what will be the impact if I allow someone on the jury who has a prior felony conviction? Um, Well, defense attorney, prosecutor, all, all attorneys have to think about it, but what what's the what will be the impact? Will will it frighten jurors? This person is hostile towards the criminal justice system. What if they felt that they were unfairly convicted? What if what if their conviction what, what if they were convicted of a sex offense uh, and 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 they refuse to accept responsibility for that? And here's this is the person who is sitting in the jury room. What impact is that going to have on the rest of the jury? Now again. We're talking about a person who has served their time, and so they've given back to society what society has asked of them uh, after they committed a crime. But the, the the broader question that will arise, and that you know, prosecutors and defense attorneys have to deal with, is what impact might that have, right? And if you're a criminal defense attorney, uh, and you know, your client is charged with theft. And you put a convicted felon on the jury who was also charged and convicted of theft. Is that going to signal to the jury that your client is guilty and you're just putting this person on because you want them to try to say, well, you know, 
I did it and look how I turned out. You know, so it, there's all kinds of subtle ways that having felon uh, or a person who has been convicted of a felony, having them participate. And, and I'm not in any way suggesting that they should not, but it's it won't be simple for attorneys. I'll, I'll just put it that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just, it's just like any other condition a person brings with them sure. when they're being put in. So I, it's interesting because I had a really great opportunity through Tulane to teach in a program they have there through the School of Professional Advancement where they partner with the program to teach women at the Louisiana Correctional Institute for Women. And, uh, you know, thinking of the things that you're saying, they are a diverse group of people, just like any other diverse group of people. Right. And there, I could very easily see some of the people I had as students being extremely biased in their articulation of whatever they would be doing on a jury because of their own interactions with the legal system, which many people who find themselves possible as as possible jurors have interacted with the legal system in some way. And then I also, it's interesting though, because I also feel that I'd say it might even be like 50, 50, I'd say the other half, because they went through either they pled or they went through a jury trial, Mm -hmm. they would hold that, sort of sanctity and responsibility of being on someone else's jury and right. such high esteem. That's right. Like it would it would matter so much to them because they know what's at stake. They understand what the outcome will mean for a person that they would take such care in going through every single thing and trying to make sure that they got it right. And so I could see it kind of being, you know, going both ways on based on the sort of concerns or just inquiries that people have or questions that people have about that population coming back into a possible jury room. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And and again, I, I think it's wonderful that those restrictions are being removed because they, they it has no no basis. Uh, well, there's no basis for exclusion. Again, mm-hmm. we say to people, if you commit a crime and you serve your time, then you should be fully integrated back into society. And so what so what society has been doing is continuing to impose burdens. So absolutely, uh, people should be able to vote and should be able to participate uh, in the jury process. Yeah. And I I chuckle a little bit because the the students I had who who probably wouldn't function well in this sort of environment. I don't think there'd be any question. I think the four cause, like, I think they'd be very clear. Right. I'm good. I don't want to be on your jury. So, uh, yeah. So I'll throw that out there for what it's worth. Um, but the last thing, if you wouldn't mind just touching upon it is this concept of jury nullification in relation to advocacy and racism in juries. How might that fit in here? So jury nullification is, is one of those issues where, again, we could probably spend an entire hour talking about jury nullification. At least, yes. I'm sure, yeah. It has a, a very long history. And it's this idea that the jury, despite the facts in front of them, which point to the defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, the jury simply refuses to follow the law. And the, the, the court long ago, Supreme Court long ago said that the jury does not have that right. The judge tells them what the law is and the jury's role is to simply apply the law to the facts as they determine, it, determine them. So the jury is the finder of fact. So the jury doesn't have a right 
to nullify the law, but because the deliberation process is secret, we can't stop them. We can't stop them from doing that. So the, the, the way that we sort of look at it is, or have looked at it over time, is that jury nullification can possibly expose cracks in the system. Because if we're looking at, for example, Black people who get on juries and refuse to convict because they see the stream of young Black defendants coming into the criminal justice system for minor drug possession offenses, and they decide, I'm not going to convict this person because I know that certain communities are over-policed. And I know that what I'm seeing in this courtroom is a product of that over-policing. And so I am not going to convict this young Black male who had a minor amount of drugs and this minor drug possession offenses. So, so in that sense, it's, you know, and then I talk about this in the book, this can expose, a, if a prosecutor is continually getting acquittals, for these minor drug offenses with young black men, then might that cause the prosecutor to stop and think, what are we doing here? Why do we have this stream of young black men coming in with these minor offenses? Maybe we should change something about the process. Maybe we should change something about policing. So in that sense, it can expose uh, cracks in the system. Uh, and so again, we can't necessarily stop jurors. Uh, one of the questions that comes up is, should jurors be instructed that they can nullify? Oh, that, that it exists. Yes. Yeah. yeah I and see. Uh, most jurisdictions say, no, we don't want jurors instructed about nullification because then they might do it. Um, instead, we should tell them that no, the judge issues the law, and that's the law uh, that you have to follow. And uh, to be fair, there have been studies that looked at the impact of giving an instruction on jury nullification. And uh, I talk about this in, in one of the sections. You know, and this is not a real trial, obviously. These are people who are brought in, and they're you know, determining this uh, fake trial. But they're given an instruction that says, okay, you can nullify the law. You don't have to follow the law. And what they found, at least in this one uh, instance, was that when jurors were given that instruction, they went back into the jury deliberation room and they were just chatting amongst themselves. So they weren't really talking about the case. Uh, they sort of chatted amongst themselves and then made a decision about the case. And so uh, jurors are always looking for a way to make things easier for themselves because it's a tough job. It's a tough job to have to go into that deliberation room and in a criminal trial and decide whether someone is guilty or not. Sure. And so the suggestion, and this is just just you know, one instance, one study, the giving them the nullification instruction sort of seemed to let them breathe a little easier 
well, we don't have to consider everything. We can kind of use our gut reaction and decide the case that way. So that seems negative, right? People aren't really considering the facts uh, of the case and, and determining what the facts are and applying the law. Uh, and again, that was just one study, which is not to say that that would happen in every instance, but it seemed to take some of the burden of digging deeper into the issues seem to take that off of their shoulders. So my next question then is this, based on all of the things that we've talked about, especially historically, where we have people consciously or unconsciously looking for reasons to not put people on juries, do you think that using jury nullification in this way might sort of prompt people to use that it's not indicative of what they say it is, but use that as ammunition as to why certain people shouldn't be on juries. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Yeah, yeah, sure. And that, that again, goes back to um, stereotypes. Right, 100%. I, I, that's what I, I, I mean, I'm not saying they're right, they would be right in doing that by any means. But right. I think, unfortunately, a side effect of using that tool in that way might be that you have that it's kind of reviving that discussion or reviving a negative stereotype. And obviously you, you weigh the benefits and the cons of doing something, but I could see that that would unfortunately probably be a negative side effect in certain ways um, among certain people. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there are obviously tools during the war deal process that are designed to get at whether a person is willing to follow the law as the judge sets it out and to serve as fact finder. And that's pretty much, that's pretty much all you can do. Uh, and, and unless the person says, no, uh, I, I'm just, I'm not, I don't believe in this law and I'm just not going to follow it. Um, there, there's no reason to get rid of them for cause. If the person says, sure, I can follow the law. And, th and this is why, uh, you know, there's no right to nullify the law, but in some some ways you can't really stop a juror from doing that because whether they're they, they could be nullifying the law but they're thinking to themselves i have a rational reason for not convicting this person and so it becomes a question of whether the person has nullified the law or whether they've made a choice about the defendant's guilt based upon a range of rational reasons right so they could have decided you know, I don't believe this witness or this witness's credibility uh, to me was undermined by something someone else said, whereas the other jurors believe that the other that this person had a pretty high level of credibility. So there are always ways for people to or for. I guess for us to look at what the outcome was or whether they held out, look at that as they had a rational reason for doing that it wasn't necessarily nullifying the law. There was a range of rational outcomes, and they chose one on the further end of the spectrum, whereas the rest of the jury was in the middle. Thank you. Yeah, no, that, that I just wanted to kind of point that out since we've kind of talked a lot about sort of the history and and underlying thought processes or implicit biases that people have, uh, and just mm -hmm. kind of talk about how that might impact things, and then. As you pointed out earlier in our discussion, a lot of our conversation when we were talking about the historical aspects of this system 
related to men only. Um, and it wasn't mm-hmm. until I'm not even sure of the year, but obviously much more recent history that women were able to participate in the jury process. And so where do you see black women in the jury process today? And is there anything that you want to talk about in relation to their situation in the system? Um, yes, as, as you said, uh, women were women of, of all races were excluded from participating in the jury process. And, and so my book is mostly about race, but uh, of course, race and gender are often intertwined when we talk about discrimination. And so uh, so there's a little bit about what happened with uh, with women, but the the participation of women was uh, excluded not for the same reason, not for the, the negative reasons that black people were excluded, but these the reasons were considered protective, right? Women shouldn't be brought into court to hear the sordid details, uh, for example, of a sexual assault case. No woman should have to to listen to that. That's a man's job. And also women had so many responsibilities at home, taking care of children, cooking, cleaning, and this sort of thing. And so uh, a jury summons should not disrupt what women should be doing uh, in the home. So women were excluded for very protective reasons as opposed to the negative stereotypes that precluded uh, Black people. What initially brought women into the system was uh, the idea that a jury should be a fair cross-section of the community. And in some communities, women were 50% of the community or more. And so if you're talking about a fair cross-section, then women should be, be brought into that process. And there was one case uh, in the book that, and I forget the name of it, but it deals with a defendant who was a woman. And she had been charged with basically scamming people uh, who were part of this religious organization that she and her husband had created, but she was taking people's money. And the judge actually said in that case, we need women on the jury because we have a defendant who is a woman and she's offering an explanation for her behavior. Her explanation her, or her defense was essentially, I was taking care of these people. So they gave me their money and I was taking care of them. I was helping them with their mental health and so forth. So her defense was basically, they got what they paid for. She was a caretaker for them. And so the judge opined uh, in the appeal, we should have some women who maybe can understand that perspective, understand where she was coming from. So again, this goes back to this idea that if, if we have a jury that is a jury of peers, which also includes this notion of a, a fair cross-section. The reason we have that is because we need all perspectives, right? We need uh, women's perspectives. We need Black people's perspectives. We need Black women's uh, perspectives uh, as well. Um, and so I, I think, you know, bringing women into the system also, of course, brought Black, black women uh, in as well. And those perspectives are absolutely necessary in the process. 
Thank you for sharing a little bit about that. I always like to kind of include context when it comes to that stuff because I've taught some courses where I talk about that context specifically related to gender and then specifically how you know intersectionality can play a role when it's black women who are being discussed in particular right and my students are always shocked at like the timeline they're like this is recent my parents were alive yes (laughs) and I'm like yes I yes I know I was almost alive we don't have to go there but yes I was almost alive um and so I I appreciate you kind of adding that on the end there well Thank you so much for all of this incredible work that you've done and for sharing this book and putting it out in the world. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to talk about? Um, not really. I think, covered a lot. Yeah, I think we've covered a broad range uh, of information. And so uh, hopefully it will be insightful and helpful for people and uh, get people discussing this issue. Wow, what an incredibly important conversation. And I think the very last thing that Professor Max said was such a great way to close the conversation. She hopes, and I hope, that our discussion, her book, will spark a greater conversation, will continue to bring these discussions to the forefront of people's minds, and that they encourage critical thinking when it comes to the legal system that we all participate in one way or another and how that system functions. Be sure to grab a copy of Professor Mack's book, Unpacking Race in the American Jury System. You can get it at Caroline Academic Press's website. You can get the ebook or hard copy through Amazon. I strongly encourage you to take a look. If you don't already, please be sure to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram. That way you can stay up to date with new episodes when we release clips or other fun events related to the Law School Lounge. But otherwise, we will not have an episode next week because of the holiday. But I look forward to catching you the week after that. And we have some really great discussions coming up. So stay tuned and thanks for being here.